The following story has been brought to you by storiestoinspire.org. I want to share with you a story that uh, I experienced a number of years ago. And it was so powerful, it was so moving to me that uh, I really feel I want to share with you. This is what happened. Corona broke out. Purim time, you remember? Purim time, March 2020. But nobody knew if you would have told somebody on Hanukkah or even a few weeks after Hanukkah that in a few weeks, you know, 7.7 billion people will be brought to their knees and every mall and shul, lahavdil, and bowling alley and pizza shop and store in the world will be closed down without a terror attack, without a third world war. Nobody would think you're crazy. It's even hard to believe that it happened, right? The Shliach, the Chabad Shliach to Rostov on the Dan River in Russia phoned me in the early winter. And he said that this year, Bez Nissen, this is 2020, Bez Nissen, the second day of Nissen, Tovshin Pei, 2020, 5,780, is exactly 100 years of the yard site of the Debra Shab. The Debra Shab passed away, Bez Nissen, Tovshin Pei, 1920 in Rostov. He escaped from the Germans during the First World War. He didn't want to be under the Germans, so he escaped in 19. 19- 14, he escaped from Lubavitch, Belarus, to Rostov. He settled there. He lived there the last few years, and he's buried in Rostov. He passed away Bez Nissen. So he said, in honor of 100 years, he wants to make a huge event. Rostov is a little bit of a neglected city. To honor the Rebbe Rashab, a whole week of learning his Maimadim and his Chassidus. And he asked me if I could come. So I agreed. Came the month of Adar. I started to appear for the trip, and I see my passport... It's going to be in, within six months of expiration. I can't use my passport. And the trip was very, very soon. It was already in the middle of, it was right before Putin. And I realized that I have to leave in two weeks. I'm not going to get my passport on time. In Muncie, there's a lady known as the passport lady. I don't know how I came across, somewhere on ad, I guess, the passport lady, to expedite your passport. So I phoned the passport lady. She gets on the phone. And I say, I have an urgent situation. I have to get to Rostov. I see my passport is not going to work. How fast can you get it for me? She said a week, a week and a half. I said, perfect. That's what I need. So I had to go with the end of other, the beginning of this. Come to my house. We'll take pictures and we'll move it along. So I got into my car. I get to her, go to her house, Spring Valley, a few minutes from where I live, not far from here. And I come into her house. I see her husband is learning Meseches Psachim. So I start schmoozing with him. He tells me he has to finish Psachim to make us see him on Erev Pesach. See, holding in the beginning, Psachim is a big Mesechta, 120 blots, a little more. He says, yeah, I do quite a few blot a night, and we fell finish Erev Pesach Psachim. Okay, we take the pictures for the passport, and everything is good. I'm about to leave. Good night. Thank you very much. Call me up when it's here so I could get it and go to Russia. She looks at me and she says, Rabbi Jacobson, I have to, I owe you a debt of gratitude. She said, I'm not sure we've met before. I'm, you owe me a gratitude? She says, yeah. I said, why do you owe me a debt of gratitude? She says, it's a story if you want to hear it. I said, I would love to hear it. So she tells me as follows. She says, I have a son. His name is Shmuli. We have a beautiful family. Shmuli is a beautiful child. But the yeshiva system didn't work for him. And a number of years ago, the whole system of Judaism stopped working for him. And he left Yiddishkeit. My husband and I knew from day one, we are staying close to our son. No matter what anybody else thinks or wants or says, we will remain very close to our child. And we did. And he moved out 
and he moved on. He was going about his life in his own way. And at some point we heard that he met a young Jewish woman from Lakewood who also parted ways from her parents and went on her own path. And the two grew a liking towards each other. And the liking intensified. And at some point they decided they want to get married. And she's from Lakewood. They want to get married in Lakewood. They're not religious at this point, but they want to get married. Jewish boy, Jewish girl, wonderful. And he tells me he wants a regular wedding. Some friends said, what are you going to spend $40,000, $50,000 on a wedding that you won't approve of? You're not going to approve of the music. You're not going to approve of the dancing. You're not going to approve of the dress code. You're not going to approve of some other things that are going on at the wedding. You have to spend $50,000. Buy herring. Herring, kichlach. You want some sponge cake? Design sponge cake. You can't get married today without sushi. It's a shail on the kedushin. Not a chalais kedushin. Fine, you can get some sushi. At Kawa, $50,000, $40,000. A wedding without, without the nachas you want. My husband and I knew, no. If this is what our son and future daughter-in-law want, they want a beautiful, nice wedding. That's what we're doing. <laughs> so we paid for a wedding with money that we didn't have, as many parents do with weddings. And uh, it was a beautiful wedding. And we invited our friends, our neighbors. They wanted a big wedding, and friends from Lakewood, and friends from Muncie, and relatives. And she says, you know, people make a lot of comments. People are sometimes judgmental. And they make comments, and every chacham of chelem has what to say and has an opinion. She said, even during the wedding, there were people telling me <laughs> that I should have not squandered so much money on a wedding that, to put it mildly, did not adhere to the highest standards of Muncie and Lakewood religious culture, to put it mildly. But my husband and I celebrated. We enjoyed, our family enjoyed. We danced with the chassam, we danced with the kala. And it was a very special moment, child getting married to a girl he loves and a boy she loves. We left Lakewood at 1.30 in the morning to get home to Muncie. Drive from Lakewood to Muncie is an hour and 45 minutes. For those of you who do it, even without traffic, maybe an hour and 40 minutes. They left 1.30. They knew they're going to be home around 1.45. They're going to be home around 3.30. On the way, she turns to her. She says, I turned to my husband. He was sitting right there. She's telling this to me, and I'm trying to make a passport to go to the stove. On the way, I tell my husband, you know, I'm feeling down. He says, why are you feeling down? We're coming from the wedding of our son. She says, I'm feeling down because maybe it was the wrong decision. Maybe our neighbors or friends or relatives are right. I mean, let's face it, the wedding was, uh, wasn't a regular Lakewood wedding, let's put it that way. And I felt, you know, could have done a small wedding, a private wedding. They wanted it this way, but I didn't feel so good about it. She says, I need therapy. I need somebody to talk to. He looks at her and he says, where am I going to get a therapist at 2 o'clock in the morning? to come into the car, with the land in a helicopter on the highway, to come into the car on the road from, from Lakewood to Mon. We're going to get a therapist. So she tells me, I turn to my husband, and I say, let's put on Rabbi YY. He's a therapist in the middle of the night sometimes. So we go to YouTube, tells me, and type in, uh, type in video, your name, yeshiva.net, whatever she typed in. And she says, a video comes on. So I press play. She tells me, I kid you not, as I press play, you're sitting there at a table, and you say, I want to share a story. Okay. So we're driving. We're exhausted. You know, the drive from Lakewood to Muncie in the middle of the night. Yeah, you do it. It's a killer. Huh? It's the worst, right? Why? It's boring. Boring, yeah. 
the highway is boring, the matzav is boring, unless you have something really good going on in the car, which some of you I know have, it's not what you wish on your enemies. It's like a bore, really, it's one of those drives, you know what I mean? Like, even if you're not tired, you want to fall asleep. Even if you're not tired. And she tells me, you start telling a story. What's the story? The story I shared that she listened to at that moment, at that drive. I said, I heard, I was standing, this is already me telling the story. I was standing at a levaya. I was standing at a funeral in front of 770. This is many, many years ago. The coffin was late. The iron was late. So I was waiting there. Near me was standing a Jew who was close to 90 at the time. Today he's in Oil Amamas. His name was Reb David Edelman. Reb David Edelman lived in Springfield, Massachusetts. He built a yeshiva there, Achet Mimim, which he led for pro- pro- approximately 50 years till his passing. Today it's continued by his family's children. Reb David was standing right near me on Eastern Parkway on the service line. We were waiting. I turned to him and I said, Reb David, tell me a story. She says, I'll tell you a story that I experienced firsthand right here. And he pointed to 770. He says, right here. I open up my, I open my ears. And Reb David says it was 1943. So this was approximately 60 or 70 years later. <laughs> 70, 70 years later. And maybe even 75 years later. He was, a, he was almost 90. He says, I learned in time Chetmimim, I learned in 770 in the 40s. I was an American boy, and I learned in the yeshiva, time Chetmimim Labavich. It was break time. It was the afternoon break, you know, lunchtime, mincha time, after mincha, around 2 o'clock, 2.30, 1.30, that time in the afternoon. I was standing with my chaver, a classmate, Herschel Fogelman, Rabbi Yehuda Tzvi Fogelman, also on the Oil today. He lived in Worcester, Massachusetts. He had a yeshiva in Worcester for 50, 60 years. Herschel Fogelman, the Yehuda Tzvi Fogelman, Zechreinam Levrach, was standing by the elevator. That's the place where the Rebbe would later give dollars. The elevator. There's a magnet there. You know the room, right? The foyer, coming to 770, upstairs, that little room where the Rebbe would give dollars. We were standing there and schmoozing. I think he said we were smoking a cigarette. Probably. Recess, 1943. The whole way of 770, probably. I don't remember if he said that. But we were schmoozing. I asked him, what were you schmoozing about? He says, I don't remember. 1943. He says, you suppose what Bachram Shmu is, you know, at the afternoon break. What do you talk about? I don't know if they were talking about Roosevelt or Churchill or probably football. The Yankees, yeah. I don't know if they were punk Yankees fan, Yankee fans, but Shaykh could be the Dodgers, 1943. It's before L.A. stole our team. 1956, this is 1943, yeah. Ebbets Field. There were people I knew who hid their ticket. Shabbos was a game. They had their tickets buried by the fence to be able to go on Shabbos. Yeah, I knew, I knew, I knew a few people. It was a big Shabbos thing. Anyway, he tells me we're standing by the elevator in the afternoon and we're schmoozing. Me, David Edelman, and, and Yehudit Tzvi Fogelman. The door opens up, the door of a room that would later be known as Ganeid Natacht in the room pre the Rebbe's room. It opens up. Who comes out? He tells me the Ramash comes out. As you probably know, the Ramash was the title of the Rebbe at the time. Reish Mem Shin, that's what they called the Rebbe. During the years of the Friedrich Rebbe, of the Rebbe Rayaz, the Rebbe was his second son-in-law. The oldest son-in-law was the Rashad, Rebbe Shmar And the Rebbe was called the Ramash, out of respect. That's what they called him, the Ramash. So the Ramash comes out of the door. And he sees us standing in Shmuzi. So the David tells me the Rebbe, later he would become the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, looks at us, and he says, Er wilt herren, a frischen Wort von Rebbe. 
Are you interested in hearing a fresh vart, something new? You say right out of the oven that I heard from the Rebbe. The Rebbe, of course, meant the Rebbe's father-in-law, the Rebbe Dayatz, whose yard site is today, Yudshvat. You want to hear something, a new vart I heard from the Rebbe? They said, of course, Avada. So the Ramash, the Rebbe starts telling them, tells, and he gives them the background. He says, as you know, here in 770, there come different types of Jews. People come to visit. It certainly wasn't a big shul then. Downstairs was a garage. Upstairs was a little shul. It wasn't a big meal, but people would come. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was there. The, previous, the Rebbe Dayatz was there. People would come. So he said, the Rebbe said, people come, and different types of Jews. There are many Jews who come visit, and on the other side of the Atlantic, they were religious. They crossed the Atlantic Ocean, like many Jews. They threw away their tefillin. They threw away Yiddishkeit. They wanted to become part of the melting pot of the American dream. They sent their children to non-Jewish schools. There were so few Jewish schools. They stopped keeping Torah mitzvahs. They come here. They visit for whatever reason. He says, my custom is, I'm very warm to them. I greet them warmly. I welcome them with a smile. And I am hospitable to them. I make them feel comfortable. And he said, There are older Chabad Chassidim who chastise me. And they tell me what you're doing is wrong. If you show warmth to a Jew who knows better, he used to be religious, and he became secular, you're giving a heksher. You're making him feel that what he's doing is fine, is valid. What you should be doing is protesting, condemning, expelling, showing them the door, telling them what you really think about them. Don't play uh, nice, cute, charming games with them to make believe you agree with them. Musr, you have to rebuke them. You are responsible because you make them feel that they're welcome. This is the episode what El Tadich Sidim, Chabad Chassidim told me. The wrong behavior. Listen to this. The Rebbe tells David Edelman and Heschel Fogman, they're their Bachman. He says, gerecht. <laughs> I didn't know who's right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're right. So today, I went to the Rebbe, some Shver, my father in law, and I told him. I asked him the question. I said, we have a debate in 770. If we should be, if we should embrace secular Jews, or we should distance them, we should protest. Make them feel unwelcome until they do tshuva. When they repent, they can come back. I shared with my father-in-law both sides. This is what the Rebbe meant, a frisha word for Rebbe, a new word. He says, and this is what the Rebbe makes up. The Rebbe would call him the Rebbe. He says, the Rebbe, the Rebbe, the Shver, the Rebbe, the father, his father-in-law. He says, this is what he told me. Rabbi David Edelman repeated what he heard from the Rebbe, this is 70 years before, from his memory in Yiddish. I'll say it in English. One word I'm going to say in Yiddish, you'll see why. He said, my father-in-law told me, Hashem created the world in a way that parents, by nature, love their children with an awesome, intense, infinite love. If you're a healthy, normal, functional human being, when you have a child, you just are filled with affection to the child. In fact, the love fills your whole heart. You would think there's no place for more love. It's like, where are you going to get more love from? But when a second child is born, your heart is filled with absolute, endless love to the second child. And when a third child is born, it's not like, okay, that's it. The reservoir of love is depleted. You can go to another house. A healthy father and mother, somehow, there's a new infinite love to the third child. And so it continues with every child who's born. And then the Rebbe Rayat said, Sadaam Mal, Kind, a child is born or a child develops an illness or a disease or a child has a disability or a deformity or a challenge, physical, 
emotional, psychological. And the parents look at this child struggling. Every move is a struggle. Walking is a struggle. Talking is a struggle. Growing is a struggle. They look at this child and they know how much this child is going to have to deal with in a difficult world. So the Rebbe tells the Ramash, he says, Farazakin, Habenze, and he said, and this is the word he used in Yiddish, an Egen Artik Elipshaft. I don't know how many of you know a good Yiddish, but you know what Egen Artik means? Egen Artik means something unique, unprecedented, out of the world, out of this world. Egen Artik Elipshaft, a special love. I, you'll ask me, they already love the regular children infinitely. That's true. But for this child, due to the struggle, due to the empathy that they have, they see what he's going through or she's going through, their heart experiences something special. There's a tenderness. There's a compassion. There's a connection with this child precisely because of what he or she has to deal with. And the Rebbe Dayatz looks at the Rebbe and he says, this is a marshal. It's a metaphor. The Eibishter hat lieb yedn yidn mit umbagrenitz the lipshaft. Hashem loves every Jew with unlimited love. And it's no difference who and when and where. Bonim atem l'ashem alakeichem. The love of the Rebbeinu Shalom to a Jew is non-negotiable, eternal, absolute, and endless. And the fact that there's another one doesn't take away from the first. The famous word from the Baal Shem Tev. Hashem loves every Jew more than parents love an only child that was born when they were elderly and they didn't think they can have a child. Even that doesn't come close to the love of Hashem to a Jew. He says, the is And he says, sometimes there's a Jew. He said, I felt in tefillin. A Jew who doesn't put on tefillin. He said, Feltach in the autumn. It says that the Avery HaGuf and the Avery HaNesham are connected. The Guf and the Neshama are one, they're connected. So the Jew doesn't put on tefillin, there's something missing in his Jewish arm. A Jew doesn't give tzedakah, there's something missing in his hand. So the Jew's head is not occupied with goodness and holiness and tayrah, there's something missing in the brain. And he went through different limbs of the body, that there's sometimes a Jew who's missing certain aspects of his or her life, and there's something missing, there's something missing in the soul. So he says, when Hashem sees such a Jew... He says, This Jew who's struggling, there's a special love. Because of the setbacks, because of the failure, because of the challenges, because of the void, there's a special love. An Egen says, The Shver, my father looked at me and he said, Do You behave like Hashem. Love every Jew infinitely. And when you see a Jew who's missing something, you see a Jew who's challenged with something, then love him much more. Keep him much closer. Keep her much closer. This is what the Rebbe answered. The Friedrich Rebbe answered the Rebbe on his question, who's right? This is what he told Rebbe David Edelman, and here's the following. Think about it. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1943 had a question. Did you read of secular Jews or not? Right? He had a question. And there were two sides. It's hard to believe the Rebbe had this question. And he went to his Rebbe. And when the Rebbe Dayatz answered, once he answered, that was it. There was no looking back, as we all know. As they say, the rest is history. But to think about that by the Rebbe was a serious question. What's the right approach? Maybe I'm wrong. Once he heard from his Rebbe what the right approach is, we all know that was it. (laughs) There was never another way. But to think that the Rebbe himself had this dilemma in his own life, what's the right path? So the passport lady says to me, I'm listening, 
I said it's a long story. It's now two, two, two thirty in the morning. I'm listening to the story, which went on as I'm driving, as we're driving back. She said, "I don't know what to tell you. My my heart, my heart was swelling with such gratitude." As we're returning from this wedding, where we embraced our children, and we had so much fun with them, and we enjoyed, and we spent all the money, and people made some comments, and then I heard what the Rebbe said over that he heard from his father-in-law. He says, literally, there couldn't have been a better message that I and my husband needed to hear at that time, and for this, I'm grateful. That's why I wanted to express gratitude. I go home, I come into my house, and I tell my wife the story. And my wife says, wow. Why do you think this is the story that came on YouTube? I said, I know the algorithms of YouTube. I would be a billionaire if I knew the algorithms, yeah? Ich weiß how YouTube works. They certainly don't have Ruach HaKodesh. But algorithms sometimes have <laughs> some interesting skills. It's interesting. Why did this come up? <clears throat> I call her up. I call up Passport Lady. And I say, which day was the wedding? You won't believe me. Which day was the wedding? You're not going to believe this part of the story. She says, it was just now. That's why I'm thanking you. I said, what do you mean just now? It's now on other. When was this wedding? This was March. She says, February 5th. February 5th. I take a calendar. I open up the calendar. February 5th is Yud Shvat. <laughs> Yud Shvat, Tovshin Pei, was February 5th. I had a Fabregen. <laughs> it was a Fabregen in the tent in Erechayim by Shainer Shul. It was one in the morning, two in the morning, whatever it was, we were fabrenging. <laughs> and I said the story. She was coming home from the chas in the Mitzvah Yudshvat. She put it on. I was telling the story about the three Dikireb and the Rebbe for Yudshvat. The wedding was on Yudshvat, literally, February 5th. So I tell her, you know that Yudshvat is the yard site of the Rebbe Rayatz, who said this to his son-in-law. She said, I didn't know. I didn't know. I said, look, the wedding was Yutzva. You're coming home. You don't know if it was right or wrong. And you put on, you put on the video and you hear this part from the ballet Lula on his yard side. She starts crying. I say, why are you crying? I thought she was crying. It was emotional. She said, there's another part of the story I didn't tell you. I'm like, what's the other part of the story you didn't tell me? She says, you know, I didn't grow up as uh, in a very Jewish home. I grew up in a very secular Jewish home. I'm like, I don't know your story. You didn't speak about you. You spoke about your son. So she says, my father, his name was jo Josh Zuatsky. He was born in Brooklyn in 1933. Her father, both of his parents died when he was a baby. So his uncle and aunt took him in. The uncle was, had a connection to Judaism. So in 1944, when my father was 11 years old, my uncle took him to get a blessing from the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, 1944. 11-year-old boy. And he brings in my father to the Rebbe, Rayatz, Josh Zuatsky. And he introduces him. He's an orphan. He has no father, no mother. He's growing up with his uncle. And he says, the Rebbe, Rayatz, looks at my father. He understood Yiddish. They all understood Yiddish. And he tells him, he says, America is a difficult place. America is a challenging place. And there's a lot of nisyoyness in America. It's very easy to lose your way in this, in this country. Vilich de Geben Abracha. I want to give you a blessing to this Josh, 11 years old. What's the blessing? As the Abish Tevet Halfen, as Trotz Alanis Yoinis, despite all the challenges, Vestuzen, Lichtike, Yiddish, Nachas, from deine Kinder und Kindskinder. You'll see amazing Jewish Nachas from your children and your grandchildren. 11 years old. He left the room. 
He grew up, like all the kids, he went to a public high school. A few years later, he had no connection to Judaism, and he moved from all places to San Diego. San Diego, he opened a perfume store, made a lot, a lot of money in the West Coast. And the West Coast then was a desert within deserts. He met a Jewish girl in the 50s, and they married a secular Jewish girl, and they had two Jewish daughters. They lived in San Diego. He made a very good living, but they grew up completely secular. One day in the 1970s, she tells me the Lubavitcher Rebbe decided to send a shliach to San Diego. And one day, my father is in a supermarket, and he sees a man with a yarmulke and a beard and payas. He thought he's hallucinating. It's like a UFO landed, you know, straight from Mars into San Diego. So the early 70s, it was unheard of. My father said, who are you? He says, I'm a Lubavitcher chassid. The Lubavitcher chassid, what are you doing here? I came to build Yiddishkeit here. He says, what do you have? He says, I opened a shul. You want to come? He says, I know Lubavitch. I was by the Lubavitch Rebbe in 1944. You don't have to tell me. He says, you've been in shul? He says, well, not in 60, uh, not in 40 years. He says, Yisker, we don't do anything. Come to shul. We have a good kiddush. Cholent is good. You know what it is. He says, okay, I'll come in. He comes in, and you know, sometimes he falls in love. He loves the rabbi. He loves the place. He loves the company. Probably like the Cholentoso, the Kichlach, whatever they had then in the Kiddush of the 70s, before the Kiddush club was invented, so whatever they had, Kichlach and Cholent. But they had something. This is the 70s, and he falls in love with the place. He comes back every Shabbos, you know, before golf, before golf, he comes to the Chaban house, it's the minig of many people in California. And he got really close to the rabbi, I think it was Rabbi Frat, Fratkin in San Diego. And one day, his daughter is telling me, he comes to me, I'm a teenager, he says, why don't you come with me to the synagogue of the Chabad house in San Diego? I says, they say, Daddy, when are you going? Saturday. Saturday we go to disco with my sister. We don't go to synagogue. He said, before you go to disco, you come to the synagogue, then you'll go to disco and dance with the boys. I'm not interested. We're not religious. What are you? You got, you got hooked. You got indoctrinated. Don't blame us. He says, come. There's an interesting class. I don't know, life after death, some interesting class. He said, just to do our old man a favor. He was a nice man. We liked him. To do him a favor, I came with my sister, and we came to the class. We sat at the class, and I have to say, it was very meaningful. It was, it was very, it was inspiring. It was meaningful. It made me think about things that I didn't think about, and I didn't want to think about, but I really did want to think about. And somehow, we went to disco, and I told my sister afterwards, the class was more meaningful than the dancing and the drinking. There was something more. So we came back the next week, and we got involved. And a year later, we found ourselves growing in Yiddishkeit together with our father. And we both tell our father we want to go to a Jewish seminary. So him, together with the Chabad Shlech, they send the sisters to Yisrael to go study in a seminary. And she says, and when I had to get married, I married my husband, who's soon going to finish Masech Tepsachim, to Erev Pesach. And my sister got married, somebody I think in Toronto, also a yeshiva bachadol. And we built families. My father... My father, he says, we were living on the East Coast. So my father came. He was already an older man. He started to keep Shabbos. He started to keep kosher. And he was sitting one day around the table, looking at all of his grandchildren, singing the Shabbos songs. And he looks at me and he says, in 1944, I was by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he told me, America is a tough place. But you're going to see lichtika Yiddish and nachas from your children and your grandchildren. This is what the Lubavitcher Rebbe told my father, Josh Swatsky. In 1944, she said, but there was one boy, Shmuley, who was struggling. This was the boy everybody had a question about. My husband and I knew what to do. And on the way back from his wedding, we hear this story from the same Rebbe who told my father about his grandchildren. 
gave us the empowerment and the confidence to know that we did the right thing. This is all as I'm planning to I got a passport to go to Rostov for the yard site of the Nebra Shab on business. Corona broke out a few days later. The Rostov trip was canceled. I never made it to Rostov. That business in Rabbi Danziger with a few people in Rostov went to the Tzien of the Rebbe Rashab, and that was that. So the passport I got, but it was never used for Rostov. But the story of Yud I got instead of the going to the Rostov. Recently, I met this lady. This happened in 2020 when I made the passport. Recently, I met her. I asked her how are things going. She said, I want you to know something. Because of my closeness, our closeness to my son and my daughter-in-law, they feel at home in our house. They feel like family. There's no differentiation. So we always invite them for Shabbos, no matter what they do afterwards. She says, I wanted you to know that a few weeks ago, I came for Shabbos, Shabbos afternoon. We were schmoozing. It was a nice meal. And it went very late. It was Shaloshudas, I think. And then she says, my son turns to me and says, by the way, is Shabbos over yet? And I take a look and I say, yeah. He says, and within three seconds, him and my daughter-in-law jump up and they run into their rooms. And I see that they're, they went to hop their phones. And I turned to my husband and I said, look, they're keeping Shabbos. They heard Shabbos is over, they ran into the rooms. This was the epilogue that she told me not long ago when I met her. So this I wanted to share with you because, for obvious reasons, but just if the punchline is not clear, it's probably pretty clear, but it's important to emphasize it again and again and again. And that is that we live today in a time where the greatest gift we can give our children, our students, ourselves, and our loved ones is safety, security, love, that every child should feel safe, secure, seen, soothed. Sometimes we're triggered very badly, and there's good reasons to be triggered. And when you're triggered, you sometimes want to distance yourself and reject. And at that moment, it's incumbent upon us to internalize the words of the Baal HaYilula. Do fizik To love every child with infinite love. And when somebody is struggling, it's not the time to distance yourself. It's the time to explode and open your heart. With a love that is unprecedented and unparalleled. Because in life, you have to ask not what your children can do for you, but what you can do for your children. Which is another way of saying, ask not what God can do for you. But what Hashem wants from you at this moment. Enjoyed this story? Come again. Bring a friend. Stories to inspire.org.